as we look to the year ahead. Start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. Our range of top quality products endorsed by the RHS includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, sheds and stores, and all made in our workshop in Essex. Make the most of your outdoor space and get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige Joinery products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order. Well, my favourite alpine is the gentian. For those who don't know it, gentians are little herbaceous plants at about six to eight inches tall and they've got brilliant blue flowers. And I first saw it at Wisley. I'm lucky working at Wisley because there's a fantastic alpine garden there and I was called upon to grow a trial of alpine gentians. But then, later, when I was on holiday in Portugal, I was lucky enough to see them in the wild. In the mountains, I found a valley of little streams and growing along with little streams in these wet meadows up in the hills were the gentians in their natural state. And the nice thing about gentians is being little, they're easy to grow in a small space like most alpines. Alpines are like little jewels that you can grow in the smallest garden. And that brings us to this week's theme, growing on a small scale. Whether you've got a neglected corner of your garden that you need to fill, or you've no garden at all, we've got you covered. We'll be exploring a host of techniques for turning odd nooks and crannies into little green oases. John Dower, a long-time member of the Alpine Garden Society, will start us off with a masterclass on constructing mesmerising gardens in miniature. It was at the first show that I saw a miniature garden and I just simply said, I can do that. And that was it. That was how the bug got implanted. We'll then meet up with Connor Smith, head of the rock garden at Utrecht Botanic Gardens in Holland. He'll share his tried and tested advice for using recycled materials to make compact crevice gardens. So it's a very kind of natural, organic way of growing plants and it works pretty well for plants because it keeps the neck of the plants quite dry. And we'll end in Yorkshire at RHS Garden Harlow Carr. Alpine horticulturists Amy Smethurst and Bertie Swainston will share their love for the high maintenance but absolutely breathtaking Dionysias. It's literally a square, probably a foot by foot wide, mm. and it's literally a mass of just vivid yellow. You can't see the green mm. underneath. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. To set the fun-sized tone, we thought there was no better way to start off than with a plant love letter. So here's RHS advisor Jenny Bowden to tell us about her mini terrarium. It's dark in the room I'm in, and winter's still outside. There's a bright light shining down on a large glass jar. It's the kind of jar you'd get in an old-fashioned sweet shop, where they'd twizzle over the corners of the paper bag. The jars planted with diminutive tropical treasures, they're all sealed in in their own self-regulating, self-watering world. The sides are just slightly misty with jungly humidity. 
Inside is a mini forest floor. There's an earth star from Brazil that's also known as Cryptanthus, and a couple of tiny riverside plants from Borneo called Bucephalandra. From tropical African marshes comes Anubius, which is another slow grower that you can find in aquarium shops. Then there's the tight, rounded, small hummock of moss that fell from my house roof. That's in there too. And there's some moss from a Surrey log and two pebbles from a Sussex beach. I love this little theatrical jungle in a jar for its shades of green, its shadows and textures and uneven terrain. Look into it for some time and you're transported to somewhere where it's definitely not winter. Thanks, Jenny. While the terrarium is an enclosed little world, shut off from the harsh elements of British winters, many mini-flora features require these frosty conditions. Most certainly if they contain alpines, these mountain dwellers need those biting breezes to keep them going. So let's leave the comfort of our rooms and face the elements. Here's John Dower to tell us all about his horticultural obsession. Miniature gardens which, as you may have assumed, flourish in the open air. I've been a member of the Alpine Garden Society for longer than I care to remember. And really, it was that that got me interested in miniature gardens. Over 30 years ago now, my wife and I decided we needed a new hobby. And we picked up a leaflet at a tiny little plant nursery close to where we live in Frodsham. And it was about the AGS. The first thing we did was go to shows, and it was at the first show that I saw a miniature garden, and I just simply said, I can do that, and that was it. That was how the bug got implanted. The one I made first was a sort of half-and-half crevice gardens, before they were even thought of as being popular, and I just crammed it with as many plants as I could get in. I took it to a show, got a second, and thought I was a genius. Later, took it to another show, got a first, and didn't know what to do with myself. It was just one of those things that it just gets you. It was just the idea of having rocks and gravel and plants packed together that made the difference. I'd always been interested in wildflowers, and it seemed to me that that was more representative of a wildflower scene and somehow it just, it just grabbed me. If you think about it, a miniature garden is nothing more than just a garden reduced in dimensions. If you have a garden which is planted up with all kinds of different bedding plants, but then you reduce it to put it in a trough, you have a miniature garden. If they have enough plants and the plants are in good condition, which is always important, then you'll find that miniature gardens look good, even in the depths of winter, when they're not really doing their stuff. One of the things that we try to do with a lot of them is to make them into landscapes. So it's a miniature garden, but it's a miniature mountain landscape, creating height and, and giving you the chance to look round the back. And so you see all different sides. More recently, and I take some credit for this, I battled with the AGS for a long time to get them to allow accessories, as they're referred. Now, there was a time, of course, I don't know if it's still the same, 
the RHS, you couldn't have a gnome. That would be absolutely not permitted. What we did was say, try it. When I used to do workshops, I had a little gnome, which I use in the talks. He's called Jürgen, and he's our little helper who's there all the while helping in the miniature garden. But now the miniature gardens that come with accessories are absolutely extraordinary. Everything from bonsai trees to little cottages to gardens within gardens. And they look absolutely stunning. So if you're going to start and make one, decide what it is you want. Decide whether it's simply to show plants or whether you want a landscape. Whatever it is, start with good drainage. You need it to drain well. The pot restricts the amount of drainage that you're going to get. You can become waterlogged if you're not careful. So you need to make sure there's room for water to pass through. If you think about what happens in the mountains, where many of these plants come from, they get covered in snow and then they get the snow melt and they get a big burst of water all of a sudden. But it drains away. It goes quickly. That's what you need to do. That's how you need to begin encouraging these plants to do their stuff. So put in plenty of drainage, then a compost. If you take a, a good John Innes number three, put with it some grit, maybe a third of grit, that will be a good starting point for a garden. Now, what is it you want to look at? If you want to see a, a landscape, you better find some stones. You better find some hard stuff that's going to help you to, to put this together. And it can be anything. You can choose literally any stones you can think of. Assemble a pile of stones ready and then plant them on top of the compost. But don't stop. Wait until tomorrow or tomorrow or tomorrow and keep changing it, altering it, because all of a sudden it will speak to you and you'll find that it looks how you want it to be. Having got the stones to that point, start planting. Now, how many plants do you reckon you might need? Well, the most I think I've ever had in one pot was 42. That's a lot. And they weren't all different. Some were the same. Some were plants that I lifted from the garden. But if you start with cuttings or you start with seedlings, then you can plant them in over the edge of the pot, hanging down on the, on the stones, literally put in as many as you can get in. I actually uh, pulled out this little piece of paper because I had a list and I had sedum, saxifraga, sempervivum, primula, androsity, drava, erinus, scylla, etc., etc., etc. There are hundreds that will suit you, that will be your preference. You may go for, for a particular color. You may go for a particular leaf form. You may go for a variety of things throughout the garden, so they're all different. You will find some plants that just overgrow. They just get too much. Take them out. Chop them off. You know, hit them with a big whip. Don't let them overcome the, the garden. Literally, alpines, I would suggest to anyone, that's the way to do it. When you've got one that's done, then what you do is you get a chair and a glass of wine and admire it. That's it. You've done it. You've created it. Of course, you'll then see bits that you thought could be better. And what you'll do is you'll refer then to your box of tools. If you go in the kitchen, you find a nice tomato cutting knife. Grab that. 
And oh, and these little forks, you know, the little pickle forks. Grab one of those. And you want a dessert spoon, a teaspoon, a toothbrush, which you give a number two haircut to, so you can scrub the stones from time to time, and a pair of nail clippers, so you can clip the little shrubs. Start then with that as your toolbox, and you can work on the garden just like you do on the big garden, but only in miniature. The thing I argue is it's easy. And so what we've talked about just about covers it and then some. Somebody who is disabled can have it on a ledge so they can handle it literally at hand level. You can do it anywhere in the garden just to create a, a little one for the kids or for granny. You can do that and it, it just, it's accessible. If you have it in mind that a miniature garden might be for you, please just do it. Don't wait on something. Don't worry about whether you have enough plants. Don't worry about whether you have enough pieces of stone. Just do it. You'll be amazed at the impression you can give yourself when you put it all together. John has been a member of the Alpine Garden Society for over three decades and has been leading tutorials on miniature gardens there for years. The Alpine Garden Society, or AGS as it's called, is a wonderful source of information for all things alpines. Check out the links in our show notes if you'd like to learn more. One of the key features of miniature gardens are the rocks that help transform a regular pot into a magical landscape. For John, it's about aesthetics, using things like slate to give a plant of that killer three-dimensional look. Similarly, crevice gardens, which I consider kin to John's miniature gardens, use rocks to transform a trough or rocky garden patch into a dynamic wonderland. But for horticulturist Connor Smith, they have another purpose too. Crevice gardens can provide the optimal growing conditions for the plants they house. And, to boot, they're often sustainable ventures. And so here's Connor with his top tips for using recycled materials to build your own mini crevice garden. A crevice essentially is a kind of narrow opening in an outcrop. So if, if you're ever in the mountains and you see a kind of rock that's been broken down over time with the weather or with kind of snow, it's then got these little narrow openings and fissures in the rock. And then over time, lots of debris and plants and seeds will eventually start growing in there. So it's a very kind of natural, organic way of growing plants. And it works pretty well for plants because it keeps the neck of the plants quite dry. And then they can get their roots really deep into the soil in order to get the moisture lower down. And then also we can transfer that quite easily over to gardens as well by trying to mimic what you see in nature. It's quite a broad definition really for crevice gardening. So you've got a small alpine plants in general, kind of lower growing plants as well, sometimes woodland plants, sometimes cacti and succulents, and also lots of bulbs that maybe don't grow as high in the mountains as well. So it's really a kind of environment for a wide range of species that fit into the style of natural mountain garden, really. For us at Utrecht Botanic Garden, we had kind of developed a slightly different style of crevice gardening. So 
In Utrecht, we have two kind of quite famous areas. We've got the spheres, which are, are these kind of large balls that have been built up with reclaimed concrete, so the broken tiles that you would find in kind of garden patios. They've been broken in half and then stacked into this big sphere, a little bit like a cake. And then on the outside, we've got plants that are growing in the little crevices and the little gaps in between the tiles. So, for example, we have Edelweiss, so we have the Ontopodium alpinum there. We have Daphne obuscula, which is a type of tree Daphne, which has these really beautiful kind of light, purpley, pinky flowers that smells absolutely amazing. It's got a very sweet, light fragrance. Before, in about 2004, 2005, we had Dionysius growing outside on the lower part, which was very special. You very, very rarely see Dionysius planted outside in cultivation. And we had like a little overhang as well that would keep it dry in the, the winter periods. And then on the other side, we've got the crevice garden, which is a very diagonal line of broken concrete and these big stones that also have little plants growing in the gap. And this is material that's normally thrown away to landfills or isn't being used. And a lot of times you can pick it up for free or you can pick it up for very little money. And that's a big difference for places that are like the Netherlands where we don't have a lot of natural rock or hardly any natural rock at all. So if you're wanting to create your own crevice garden at home using recycled materials, you can do that quite easily with a trough. So that's a nice kind of little small area that you don't have to have a big garden to have. And then you can have, you know, broken garden tiles or slate or uh, natural rock as well that you could get. So if you want to do it on the cheaper side, there's always building sites. You have a lot of concrete that isn't going to be used. And a lot of the time, people are quite keen to get rid of it on construction sites. So they'll be more than happy to give you a piece, possibly for free or possibly for a, a very small fee. So that's the kind of easiest way to get rocks or rock-like structures for crevice gardens. And there's a few kind of fundamentals to try and follow when you're making the crevice garden. The kind of important rule is you have all the rocks facing in the same direction, and then that's quite a natural look. If you have all the rocks facing in different directions, it's quite unnatural and a little bit confusing. So then that's the first one. The second one is really keeping the rocks quite close together, really as close together as you can. And that really forces the plants to grow deeper into the soil and become a lot tougher that way. If you have these big kind of gaps in between the rocks, it's not really a crevice garden anymore. It's just more of a, a rock garden as well. There's certain tricks about planting as well. So the planting depth is very dependent on the species that you're wanting to use. So depending on if it's an alpine or if it's a succulent or if it's a bulb, you'll have to plant them slightly different as well. The alpine plants, you really want to make sure that the soil is off the roots and then you're planting the roots quite deep into the crevice. For succulents, you really want to make sure that they are kind of wedged in against the rocks and that keeps the neck of the plant quite dry and then that'll help them live over the wet winter periods. 
And then for bulbs, you really want to make sure that you're planting them a little bit deeper than the other plants as well. And then that will give them enough reserves to continue to flower. I think the plants that you would like to have in a crevice garden would be some things like Armeria, which is a thrift, which is a plant that you have in Britain and throughout the Northern Hemisphere. It's a really tough, beautiful little plant that has these little spiky kind of foliage. And then Saxifraga as well is another genus that you can get easily from garden centres and nurseries. And it's a proper rock-dwelling plant. So a lot of them are really used to the crevice garden conditions in the wild, and they are well suited to a trough as well. You can really get a lot of different diversity into a really small area, which I think is why they're getting really popular with people that have, you know, really small gardens or people who only have a balcony and they're in an apartment. I think crevice gardens and working with plants in general is, is very important. The natural world is unfortunately struggling a little bit because of various different things like climate change and over-harvesting of plants. And for alpine plants, a lot of the plants in their native and kind of natural conditions are beginning to struggle because they don't get regular snow cover, for example, or it's just getting a lot warmer. And then they have to try and go further up in the mountain. But eventually, if it keeps getting warmer and warmer, they're going to run out of mountain. And then they're going to come threatened and then possibly extinct as well. So knowing that I, as a botanic garden worker, or also a lot of people in general as well, can try and look after these plants and get them from nurseries and really try and protect them as much as you can is, is very valuable. Thanks there to Connor. In the feature, Connor mentioned growing Dionysias on the crevice spheres at Utrecht Botanic Gardens, and what a feat that is. Dionysias, while absolutely show-stopping, are known to be some of the most demanding temperamental plants around. Nevertheless, if you're looking for a challenge, RHS Alpine experts Amy Smithhurst and Bertie Swainston have just the pointers you need to try and grow these at home. So let's head to Harlow Car Alpine House to delve deep into this stunning but tricky genus. I'm Amy Smethurst and I am a Alpine horticulturalist at RHS Harlow Car. And I'm Bertie Swainston and I'm also a horticulturist in Alpines at Harlow Car. So RHS Harlow Car Alpine House is a big alpine house that's not heated, as alpine houses aren't heated generally. And it has a large landscape taking up most of the house. And then on the other side, there are sand plungers which get changed daily with what's looking best to make a really good display. With alpines, because you have lots of different collections of plants mm. um, and they all need such specific care, it's learning how to grow that particular plant at its best and you know, keep it looking at its best. And it's kind of also finding that how it works in your 
area. So obviously in Yorkshire, we're very different from Wisley. Dionysius, for example, grow really well for us because of the moisture in the atmosphere up in Yorkshire, but they struggle with them being so dry and hot down in Wisley because obviously we've got that quite a similar temperate climate to Afghanistan and Turkey where they come from. So it means it's a great opportunity for us to grow something really difficult. And the fact you get so much really unusual types of plants in alpines as well, and it sort of really ranges. So you get things like masonias, the bobbly leaf coming out almost looking like frogs in the ground or something. And then that ranges to like covered in bloom of the Dionysia cushions. There's something that's really unusual. And Dionysia especially, it's what sort of really drew me into alpines. And it is, the challenge is the fun part of it. It's experimenting of what works and what doesn't is definitely a yeah, key part we, of alpines. <laughs> we definitely have to accept death. That's one of our, <laughs> one of our daily occurrences, I think. <laughs> genus Dionysia, there's lots of different species within that and they're actually under the primula family. So when you actually look closer, they tend to have lots of tiny little flowers all over them as a big cushion. And so they just create this sort of mound of colour when they're all out in flower. And when you actually look closer, they're very small flowers, but you can really tell that they are in the family of the primulas. There's some that are branched, but most of them tend to be really tightly formed cushions of either flowers when they're in the flower or just like a green matting. If they're more wild, they tend to form mats. Yeah. Whereas if you grew them in pot culture, they'd make these perfect little cushions yeah. of tiny little rosettes. It's like a pure little carpet, isn't it, of just flowers. It could be sweetly scented as well. So as soon as you see sort of the sunlight on that, I don't it's think it's... so detailed. Nothing it's, compares to yeah. it, really, Two, two mats of Dionysia compact pin, yeah. which is a bright, vivid yellow out mm. at the minute. And it's literally a square, probably a foot by foot wide. Mm. And it's literally a mass of just vivid yellow. You can't see the green mm. underneath. The first time I walked into the Alpine house, I'd been off for four days and I walked in and it just hit me. And it's, yeah. it's just, it looks ridiculous. It's that, that yellow, it's beautiful. Let's dive in on how to grow Dionysias. I myself have tried it literally on a windowsill and I've had a varying degrees of success with that. So the main things with Dionysias is you have to keep a real eye on them in the winter because these are really tightly formed cushion plants that create really neat domes. And so they have little sort of leafy green rosettes that clump together. So there's not a lot of air movement with them. So when you grow them yourself at home, you need to make sure it's as well ventilated as possible and it's not on top of a radiator, so it's just going to dry out and crisp. A cool windowsill. A cool windowsill, especially north-facing. Once you go in more into spring, you want to actually turn it to face the sun so each of the buds get a chance to flower. I suppose, as a lot of people might have experienced at home, of of any kind of plant that you have on the windowsill, it will lean towards the light. So, so with, yeah, if you had a Dionysia, you definitely want to turn yeah. it so, so it's an even flowering. Yeah, so if you turn it as it's in the sun, that'll ripen the flower buds. Mm. And so then you'll get a full cushion rather than just half flowering and then the other half coming later on. Mm. So if you just keep turning. <laughs> yeah, that'd think. be the best way. Yeah, really. once you get over kind of two or three years, four years, the plant mm. becomes to a size where it actually becomes a lot more difficult to look after. And so we have a specific house where we look after them, a small 
glass house and it has a plunge bed of sand like the display beds and it has an automatic watering system mm. so we can flood the bed at the bottom all the water wicks up through the sand and it means we never actually have to directly water the plants from above they'll always just take it through the terracotta pots so when they're small you could water them on a mm. saucer and they would you know take, take it, it up, up. And then you could take them off. But as the pots get bigger, it's hard to get that volume of water in. You want it, them surrounded all the time. And obviously, as they get bigger, it's difficult with rock risk. But once you've got a, a little plant, you can start to try taking cuttings from it. Mm. And if you can take tiny little cuttings of each individual rosette of leaf, and you can just put that into pure... Pumice is the best thing that we find, or you can even mm. just put it into pure horticultural sand yeah. and very carefully tweezer it in and then compact it round and then just leave that during the active growing period from kind of May to September. Yeah. Those cuttings will likely to root the following spring. You'll have some little roots on them. Mm. And from that, then you can get hundreds of individual little plants, but they tend not to be grown from seed. They tend mm. to be cutting material. They are a challenge, but it is something you can do at home. I think people who have house plants really kind of cherish and monitor their plants a lot with them being at home quite often and I think the Dionysians are very similar to that that they want to be checked for watering and basically if you're walking past them every day you just have a little look at them check they're okay that kind of level of interest probably. <laughs> I think it's part of the fun though is the challenge it's all about experimenting as well so it's I'd honestly say why not if you're really interested in them and you'd like to give it a go it's definitely worth it so I definitely recommend it. Thanks there to Amy and Bertie. Well, that's about it for today. But before you go, as always, here's a short list of what you can do in your garden this week. Spring is just around the corner, so it's time to get sowing indoors or in your greenhouse, starting off those tender plants like petunias and tomatoes. It's also time to get the ground ready outside, so with fork, spade, hoe and rake, or just spreading compost if you're a no-dig gardener, Get all the ground up for that rush of sowing that's going to come in the next two months. And it's last call too for winter pruning. Prune your apples and pears and other fruit trees and bushes now. And also be ready to finish off the roses. They need pruning to be done by March. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening. And hopefully it'll mean we'll start to see more and more miniature gardens at AGS shows in the foreseeable. That's all for now. So for me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. Start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. The RHS-endorsed range of top-quality joinery includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, stores and more for people who want to make the best of their outdoor space. The products are made in our Essex workshop from responsibly sourced timber and with each order, we plant a new tree. Get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order.